Well, hi there, and welcome to I'm All Over the Place. My name is Dara Star Tucker, and I am so happy to be joined today by Dr. Bonnie Wozlick, who is, I'm going to allow you to kind of introduce yourself, Dr. Bonnie, and tell us exactly what your area of specialty is. But I've done a, a, several videos recently on the issue of cultural appropriation, particularly between minority groups, and have done a lot of that content in the past. So we want to kind of have a deep dive discussion with someone who is an academic, who is a specialist in this area, and can give us some further insight into that. So having said that, Dr. Bonnie, would you please introduce yourself uh, to, to the audience? Yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Bonnie Wozlick. I am an associate professor at Penn State Abington, so just a little bit outside of Philadelphia. And I'm also currently serving as the inaugural director of diversity, equity, inclusive excellence, and belonging for our campus. Um, my background, a little bit about my background, I was a K-12 teacher actually for over a decade, um, and I had one of the very last multi-age licenses in the first state where I started teaching, and so I started with the really littles and uh, pre-K to second, worked some time in middle school, and then finished my career teaching high school. Um, my line of research specifically looks, I'm in the field of curriculum studies and educational foundations, so it's really a question of educational histories, what we learn, how we learn, who has access to knowledge, whose access, um, whose knowledge is of most worth is a very classic curriculum studies question. Um, and my specific work that I do is thinking about questions of marginalized populations and educational context really broadly. So I specifically think about students of color and queer and questioning youth and their allies and the intersections therein. Uh, and education very broadly for example, I had done work with women in India who were survivors of intimate partner violence mm -hmm. and thinking about cultural context of education and how cultural or culture educates us um, in lots of ways. So mm -hmm. that's the work that I do as, as a scholar um, and uh, as an educator more broadly. Okay. Well, you're, you're super qualified, you're overqualified really to have this discussion because... <laughs> Um, you know, the space that I operate in is I'm not an educator. I did teach elementary school for a couple of years way back in, in the day, but I do not think of myself um, as necessarily as an educator. I guess what I do does kind of fall into the education space online, but a lot of what I end up doing in online spaces is communicating with people who have kind of a general interest in, in a lot of these topics, but really do not have a lot of time to study them very deeply or don't take a lot of time to study these issues very deeply. So mm -hmm. I end up having, you know, many sort of, you know, irritating, I'll say conversations in the comments section with people. I just was talking to one guy today who um, wasn't necessarily a troll, but he was someone who basically came back and said, well, you know, this is a video I did on cultural um, appropriation between minority groups. He's like, well, you know, you don't respect anyone's opinion that's not, you know, like yours, because I feel this way. And I feel like culture should just be able to exchange. And, you know, you're trying to police people, you know, just those general types of, of arguments and basically coming back at me with, uh, well, this is just your opinion. You, you don't necessarily know I'm someone with an opinion and you're someone with an opinion and you just need to listen to what I have to say. And of course, my response is, uh, cultural appropriation, cultural appre appreciation, acculturation. These are topics that have definitions. They have meanings. There are people who have observed these um, social phenomena and who have really made a practice and a study of understanding what these things mean on a very you know, nuanced level 
and you can actually go and, and research these things and come to a better understanding of what people mean when they use these terms. And we can understand that it's not really just about policing behaviors. And as I said in one video, key, separating the carrots and peas and, and trying to keep everyone separate. And, you know, we understand that cultures influence each other, but this is not really just about uh, policing people's behavior around cultures. So can you kind of give us, I guess, just a general overview of like why people should care about this stuff? Why should they study it on a deep level? I mean, words like cultural appropriation, I'm working right now on a video about uh, Paul Simon's Graceland and how that sort of fits into this conversation. And it's like, you know, one of the things I say at the beginning is this was not even a term that was really used very much at that time. You know, most people wouldn't have known what cultural appropriation meant. So why is this something that even needs to be studied or understood by most people? Well, you know, it's... I'm laughing because um, I have children and I was actually just having a conversation with my 12 year old over the weekend about this, who's trying to grapple with it herself. Um, and, and what does this mean in her own life and how can she um, think and be not just reflective, but reflexive. That's a term that I use not only in my household, but with my students quite a lot. Right. So not just thinking about yourself, but thinking about yourself as you are constantly in touch with and a part of um other people and other structures more um, specifically, right? So when I when I think about this, part of it is that it's complicated and it, it should be complicated. And even as a scholar who thinks very deeply, I'm a qualitative researcher, I do, uh, I engage in what's called sonic ethnographic work after my uh, research uh, thesis advisor, Walter Gershon's work. Um, and I, I think a whole lot about how do we understand how things resonate? How are things um, in distance with each other? What does it mean when we're studying people and practices and culture is always being made and unmade, right? Um, and then what does it mean to, as Verena McDermott would say, to, to live in a, a particular house, right, that's built and to take responsibility in a way for certain um, cultural norms and values that you that we sit with. And so when I think about these topics and the work that I do, part of it is leaning into the complications of the unknown. I think that right now um, I'm watching, I think it's it's specific to a lot of people, but maybe more broadly to other types of cultures where uh, we have to know, right? Um, there's there's a almost a dangerous point in not knowing and saying I need to, to lean into saying, I'm not sure about this. And maybe because it's so complicated, we need to go back to practicing coalition politics. We need to go back to listening deeply to each other, as Pauline Overis would say, and doing that kind of work um, together in communities rather against each other in communities. And I think that that's a, a strong starting point for me. Um, and that's, that's really hard, <laughs> I think, for a lot of folks to sort of grapple with that um, sense of uncertainty. In terms of cultural appreciation, appropriation, um, you know, again, that's it's slippery, but it's it's connected to power dynamics, right? So, in one of your videos, I had noticed that you had re referenced this idea of um, cultural um, plagiarism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that that term, as you look at it, really is leaning into questions of structures of power. Mm -hmm. It's leaning into questions of politics and gender and race and um, these things that happen when questions of cultural appropriation or appreciation have become empty signifiers, right? So we have used them so much, we're not quite sure what they mean. 
And when I think about what this means in terms of why we should all be thinking about this, for me, it's because although it's a, a concept, you might think of it as an academic concept, you might think of it as something that um, belongs to certain contexts, but the reality is, is that the term and the idea lands on bodies and people, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it, um, it hits bodies and people in a particular way that we need to pay attention to in ways that can be harmful. And mm -hmm. so when we're thinking about what can actively cause harm to people and to communities, I think that's something that we need to, as a very broad um, uh, sense as humans, um, human animals, if you're thinking about this from you know, a post-humanist to be very academic <laughs> or new materialist stance, um, if we're thinking about the, the human in context, then we do need to think about what, what it means to cause harm, whether it's intentional or unintentional to people in groups and what kind of harm we're causing and how we can um, interrupt that, how we can resist it and how we can refuse it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important word to zero in, in on is harm, because like I said, you know, a lot of these conversations, they're not being had at, at the academic level. These are not people who are sitting in classrooms and who are taking in this information holistically and really understanding it on a very deep kind of historical level in the context that you as an academic would be able to present it to someone in, you know, I have literally made maybe three to five minutes, maybe with people and many people will not even stay and watch a video for that length of time. They're going to take in 60 seconds of content and then they want to comment and push back on, on certain things. So I think, um, you know, it's important to be able to, for someone like me, to be able to communicate these concepts, which some of them can be very complex to be able to communicate these concepts in a way that is simple. I always say I try to aim my content for maybe a really smart high schooler, like a 15, 16 year old to communicate this information in a way that's simple, that's straightforward, that doesn't kind of get people too deep in the weeds um, about it. So I do want to talk about that word harm because I have used that word in a couple of my presentations. Um, but I also want to address um the idea that that I do feel coming from, uh, I'll say, a certain group of folks, and we can probably guess, you know, who that specific group of people are, that for a lot of people, it feels very scary to have conversations around uh, what they feel is limiting or policing cultural exchange. Because obviously, and I approach a lot of this stuff from the standpoint of uh, an artist, I'm a singer myself and a performer, I talk about these things. As I said, I'm getting ready to do a video on Paul Simon's Graceland. I talk about a lot of these things in the sense, you know, in the, in the context of, of music. And as we know, you know, the history of our music, especially in the United States, is an amalgam of a whole lot of things. If we didn't have free and open um, cultural exchange, artistic exchange, we wouldn't have most of the music that we love in this country. Our musical history would not be as rich. So can you kind of speak to that, um, I guess, that concern with a lot of folks that we are entering when we really start to dissect and pull some of these issues apart um, around harm, the harm that can be caused through things like cultural appropriation? Um, can you kind of speak to some of those concerns that a lot of people address with me? Like, hey, you know, we're walling ourselves off and we're kind of changing the whole concept of, of, of how we move forward culturally or even, you know, specifically musically. Well, I think that's a 
I can't necessarily speak to it musically. Um, I, while I work in sound studies, I am not a musician. Um, my 12 year old will remind you of that anytime I sing it. <laughs> there's, there's no, um, no doubt about that. But what I can speak to is how we can understand these things in sociocultural, political understandings, right? And there are a couple of things that become significant when I consider these topics. The first is going back to, again, Walter Gershon's work, who I can't recommend enough. Look it up if you haven't. Um, if you can want you say to that know. name again? It's Walter Gershon, G-E-R-S-H-O-N, okay. right? And he does really beautiful work um, thinking about educational contexts and sounds. Um, and so really worth thinking about. But one of the things he says is um, breaking down to what he would say is a question of it, your intentions, attention, expression, and reception, right? Mm -hmm. So what are the intentions with which you're doing something? What are you paying attention to when you um, carry those things out? How are those things expressed, right? What is the expression of those things? And then something we can't necessarily always um, control, or I would say that we, we have very little control over, which is reception. And so as a musician, I'm sure that you can have a lot of intention and attention to the way you express yourself vocally, right? Mm -hmm. How that becomes received um, can sometimes be intention with all of the other things that you've thought about before that form of expression that comes out musically, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when I think about this question of cultural appropriation or what people would say is cultural appreciation and what is the tension there, on one hand, there's a, there's a there's that tension that exists between what you felt you have expressed, right? Mm -hmm. And what you, how you have, what you have, what you have expressed um, is received by other people. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to sort of lean into that because also getting into the mix of this is a question of identity politics, which on one hand can be really helpful, right? I don't want to ever um, take away the tools of folks when they're using those tools to interrupt and re resist and refuse oppressive norms and values. On the other hand, as we've seen, identity politics can also be used as a, as a tool of exclusion, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we think about how culture is made and unmade consistently, we also have to consider questions of power, right? Um, so it's a question of access, right? who has access to what? And then when I think about cultural appropriation, I think about just the word appropriate, right? For mm -hmm. whom is it appropriate to do what? And that's a really messy question. Um, mm -hmm not one that I necessarily wish to answer with um, some black or white. This is, I mean, it's, it's all, it's, it should always already be entangled. And this is where I think that being reflexive, going back to this deep refle reflexivity of saying, well, where do I sit in this? And what was my intention, right? How was mm -hmm. I expressing that? Was I thinking about myself as just myself? Was I being reflective or was I being reflexive myself as I'm always in touch with all of these other things in the world? Um, and so I do wonder how much people are engaging that way when they're thinking about cultures, right? Mm -hmm. They're thinking about um, different pieces of different cultures, what this means musically, what it means in the fashion world. Are we thinking about how the power dynamics um, can be further marginalizing, right? So if I think about going back to this question of cultural plagiarism, going back to the fashion world, going back to what um, how I assume the music world works as well, is are you taking, borrowing, stealing, however you want to look at that, um, certain pieces, parts of other cultures, using it for your own capital gain, not allowing um, any form of um, dialogue around where, where that came from. And are you using that capital gain to benefit the communities from which you took those things, right? Those are all questions that I have 
um, when we lean into this conversation. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's Joseph M. Wanted with the Constitutionalist Politics. Tune in for the upcoming episode for May 4. Issue, never the issue, as well as, yes, Peter Serafin, Rosemary Downer, Don Gallade, Gista the Rapper, Cy Young, Jason Perry, and upcoming Jack Hagar, Andrew Thorpe King, Trent Rock, Ed Temple, Chris Morehouse, and more. Please tune in to Constitutionalist Politics. God bless. Mm -hmm. So do you feel, and again, pulling a question from this same conversation that I was having earlier today, um, you spoke about harm. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there are certain um, cases in which there, uh, there is not harm that's done, particularly if this is minority culture, you know, this is happening between minority cultures. I mean, is this always a harmful thing? And how do we assess that? I mean, obviously, there's no kind of black and white answers, but what what can you how can you speak to that issue of of harm? Well, I would never use speak in absolutes that way. That's just not how I function as a scholar or as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wouldn't say that it always causes harm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. I can say that it depends, again, on a lot of other variables and how you lean into things as to what harm is caused, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so between, if you're, if you're, you brought up the, the example of, can there be cultural appropriation between minorities, for example, mm-hmm. and would we consider that harmful? Um, I think that there are lots of situations where there might, for example, be a black artist who relies, artists in a very broad sense, right? Who relies very heavily on um, Southeast Asia, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and, or, or a designer, for example, that, relies heavily on even Southeast Asian factories um, and incorporates elements of Southeast Asian culture into the design. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a type of exploitation, right, between what would be considered two minorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, I'm going to say, yeah, harm is, harm is caused. And mm-hmm. we need to think about what that means, um, particularly in the fashion, fashion industry when we're exploiting people, cultures, and land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to bring fashion to other nations, right? What does that mean? And how do we interrupt those things? Um, it, it gets really messy really fast. Um, at the same time, I don't necessarily know that, to say that I didn't mean to, right? Or I, I think in the one article I was reading, it said like, well, it's just hair. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's not just hair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> let's, let's just pause there and say that that might be... Um, significant to one's culture and it's um and to one's histories and to um in some cases forms of oppression and we need to say it's not just hair right Mm -hmm. we're going to think very deeply about this and the harm that's caused by um dismissing things and so i don't ever want to say it couldn't cause harm because it might cause harm that i don't even know about right Mm -hmm. um and so again i think that's where we sit in the complication and we say okay (laughs) am i causing harm that i don't even know about Mm-hmm. Uh, even by my comments. Um, and is that something I'm okay with? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's something you have to sit with yourself. That it's not just a question. Um, it's an inquiry as my good friend, Reagan Mitchell would say, um, <laughs> because you have to sit with it for longer. And that's, I think that's worth taking the time. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think, you know, for you to bring up hair, because this is always a hot button issue. And again, I'm working in the online space. This is social media. The interactions are very terse. They're very just kind of, um, you know, we got the uh, the rowdy section and, and folks that just want to pop off about any and everything. These are not deeply um, intellectual conversations a lot of the time that are being had around this issue. So I will say that. Um, but you bring up the issue of hair. This is one of the, the big pushbacks that I get when I start to show examples of fashion choices or hair choices that people can make that very clearly are, are referencing, heavily referencing uh, someone's culture or referencing an aesthetic mm-hmm. um, that is reflective of someone else's culture. So um, box braids would be a very clear example. I mean, it's a, it's a very popular thing right now to reference hip hop culture. I mean, it's kind of been the dominant um, fashion to, uh, to reference, I think, um, in popular culture for a little while now. Um, but people, people really, they tighten up around hair specifically. And then you end up having these, these very tedious even silly conversations around, well, Vikings wore braids and you don't own braids and, you know, trying to get people to understand, like we are not specifically, you know, trying to regulate who's wearing braids and um, that one culture owns the idea of braids. That's not really what's at issue. So when someone brings up something like, uh, you know, box braids or, um, you know, dreadlocks or, or those, those sorts of, choices that are very clearly referencing um, a very specific cultural aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, you know, what, what is sort of the grounding, I guess, that you give for even presenting this as an issue that is worthy of discussion? Because for a lot of people, it just feels, it feels very nitpicky. It feels very gatekeepy. Um, <laughs> It, it just, it, it gets trivialized and it gets minimized a lot. And so why can you kind of talk to us about why this is not, is not maybe something that should be trivialized? Yeah. I mean, I always encourage people, whether, I mean, um, it was high school student I was teaching or um, whether it's a college student that I'm working with to think about educating themselves, right? Um, that's not something that I feel like we do um, enough of sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, even on my own social media pages, um, I was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and I know that that dates me, and my students were telling me mm-hmm. that makes me very old. I get it, fine. Um, but one of the things I noticed is people would say, hey, Facebook hive mind, and then ask a question. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, hey, folks, these are the steps that I've taken to understand this deeply, mm-hmm. right? Can you please send me your thoughts, any resources you have so I can engage even further on this topic? Mm-hmm. And so it's odd to me at a moment when we have, at least here in the United States, I'm speaking from this context, um, the ability to get on the internet um, and have at our fingertips so many resources. Um, there are folks who will use their opinion as it intersects with um, what they've seen immediately. And then it's like the curiosity stops, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this goes to what you were saying earlier about folks not listening to an entire, what, three minute long video, (laughs) right? right? So one of the things that I I have done is I, um, one of my most recent books is a sonic ethnographic study. So I worked with um, black and brown students in a predominantly white space for two years, and they made a lot of sound recordings. 
hours and hours of sound recordings. Mm. Um, and then rather than transcribing that data, you just there's a QR code and you can listen to them. Well, on the mm. back end, like a lot of these platforms, I can see how how much somebody has engaged with the sound file, how long they've engaged with the sound mm. file. Mm-hmm. And this is more often than not a young person talking about the forms of oppression that they've lived with, right? Mm. And listen for about the first, I would say, 30 to 45 seconds at most, and then they're done. Mm. And that might be that either they feel like they've gotten it, right? Which is a question of how how deeply are you really engaging with another person's story? Mm-hmm. Or are you only engaging with yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I think I've gotten the entire point and therefore I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a question though, to me of curiosity, where is this going um, rather than having a foregone conclusion? And so I think that what I'm watching and what as a professor makes me a little worried is that sometimes there's a lack of curiosity mm-hmm. and I'm consistently asking my students to remain curious, right? Um, Mm -hmm. to continue to engage in not knowing and saying, okay, well, I don't know much about, for example, how black women wear their hair. I I don't know those histories. I'm going to engage in that for a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm going to engage with it across types of media, right? I'm not just Mm going to scroll into TikTok and look up the hashtags um, and say, well, okay, my research is done. I'm going to look at different reference materials and think like, okay, I want to be informed about this before I engage in it myself for my body. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but again, leaning into the complications of things, um, I have one child who presents very much like me with dark hair and brown skin. I have one child who has blonde hair and blue eyes. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> very different um, looking kids. Um, and when I think about my own home culture, which is, um, I'm biracial, half Indian, I, I wonder like, if my son, for example, who is light skin, blonde hair, blue eyes, decides to wear a kurta, is he going to be called out for cultural appropriation? So there's another question, there's another layer here for me, which is always um, how we we ourselves are engaged in communities, right? Um, and then what it, what it means to be engaged in a community and invited into that community and mm-hmm. invited into those cultural points. Um, what does it mean in a world where you could have two very different looking children. They both um, wear salwar kameezas or kurtas or whatever it is. And then one's called out for cultural appropriation and one's not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a Mongol Sutraman. I constantly have people say, do you know that that's Indian? Yes, I'm biracial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so those get into really um, contentious lines that I think we need to pay attention to. So mm-hmm. I think for me, there's this question of how do we educate ourselves before we engage into things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we think about um, the, I guess, have open consideration and curiosity for other people in front of us rather than saying, okay, well, this looks like a white man. He can't be playing Afro-Cubana mu- music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's surely not, um, that's outside of the bounds of what he can do, right? Um, and then if we, ha- if we don't have that invitation in from other communities, then really thinking ourselves about if I engage, what are the histories with, them, with which I'm engaging? And in, do engaging in these histories cause harm to other people? Hmm. And the answer is yes. Is that something I'm I'm willing to do? Right. And so for me, I'm always gonna I'm always gonna sit or stand or be on the side of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. Here at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so knowing that these things are complicated, I'm going to be very careful with how I understand these things, um, and I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Um, rather than just making assumptions. And that's the thing 
that social media gives us is the ability to make a quick assumption, a snap judgment, put it on and have anonymity that allows us to feel as if we don't have responsibility and we mm-hmm. do. Um, and so even in these moments of it's cultural appropriation or appreciation, and to be really clear, there are times that it certainly just is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter, when she was in, I want to say first grade, I was very busy with my first academic job. And so I'll admit to not paying as close of attention as I should have. She was in the school play. Um, I went to go see her school play and it was Peter Pan. Mm. Format of Peter Pan. (laughs) And as an academic and a parent, I just sat there and cringed and thought, what on earth is going on here? Um, And then had lots of words. you know, behind the scenes with the administrator and with the choir director and lots of folks who didn't understand why it was problematic, right? Mm-hmm. And didn't understand why it was harmful, right? Um, mm-hmm. And said things like, well, I don't think there are any, we have any indigenous parents. Stop, <laughs> stop, right? Yeah. There, You're making a lot of assumptions about the people um, and, and or their connections, mm-hmm. right? Whether or not there's an indigenous parent in the room is irrelevant to yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and so these things become problematic when we stop being curious. Mm-hmm. And so um, I always caution people away from things that block our ability to be curious about ourselves, about others, about histories, and not to engage in those things fully. Um, mm-hmm. Because as I told my students, the amount of times that you spend, I believe the term is doom scrolling um, mm. across social media platforms, you could have looked something up on Google. Yeah. Whatever platform you you choose to um, yeah. look stuff up on mm-hmm. so it's a yeah. choice you're choosing not to be curious yeah yeah and i've started to zero in on that more again in the online space more mostly comment sections where i'm interacting with people around these issues but i've started to call that out a lot more these days um, than I used to, where I would, you know, a lot of these videos that I'm doing right now are reposts of things that I did, you know, a year and a half, two years ago. I engage with this very differently now than I did then, because I would be willing to get kind of into the weeds with people and have these sort of back and forth conversations about whether Vikings were wearing uh, dreadlocks 3000 years ago and, you know, having these sort of silly, what I, I feel are, are really, um, silly discussions around things that I feel like people on, on really actually do understand on a deeper level. They just want to deflect and not have the conversation that is being had. And so I feel like I've gotten a little um, wiser around this and how to have conversations um, around these issues, because as you said, a lot of this kind of thing really does boil down to um, a curiosity and an openness and a willingness to understand how our behavior affects other people. And if we start from that place, then the questions that we're asking are, are different than if we are not starting from a place of wanting to understand how our behavior impacts other people, regardless of what our, our intentions are. Um, I have a kind of a general question, and this is more just sort of an observational thing from your standpoint as someone who works in um, these sort of, would you say that you work in the, so in the sort of behavioral sciences or not behavioral sciences, but more of like a social scientist, um, perspective. Um, what I feel like I encounter quite a bit is just the lack of, when we, when we start having conversations around culture is I'm no expert, but I can engage in and have a basic conversation around, the concept of culture and, you know, which is even just the launching point for how a conversation around cultural appropriation 
um, develops, but we have to start with even understanding what culture is to begin with, or having, as you said, a curiosity or a desire to understand what culture is. And I feel like a lot of the pushback that I have received, a lot of the, um, uh, you know, the disputes and things that happen around this issue really stems from a lack of understanding on the part of a lot of folks, a lack of understanding of what culture even is. Mm -hmm. And these are not just young people. Because uh, Facebook, you mentioned Facebook, Facebook can be the worst. YouTube, Facebook, where there is an older crowd mm-hmm. trying to attempt to um, put out content like this and have conversations like this. It it can, it, it's, it's just as bad, if not worse, to try and have these conversations with people who are over the age of 35. So there is not kind of a basic understanding amongst, you know, wide swath of the population from my observation. And there's not a, an understanding or a respect for culture in and of itself um, it, with, with large groups of people. Mm-hmm. And I can't say it's just with white, with, with, with white audiences, but oftentimes I encounter this issue with, uh, with white followers, even if they do have the best of intentions. It's not that they're necessarily just trying to be caustic or push back, but they are having a difficult time wrapping their heads around a conversation about cultural appropriation, because then they immediately start pushing to questions about, you know, well, what about Beyonce dyeing her hair, hair blonde? Or, you know, you, you wore a tennis shoe. A tennis shoe was invented by a white man or something like that. We'll just have kind of, you know, these endless exchanges about, well, you know, Fats Domino is playing the, the piano and the piano was invented by, you know, we'll just get into these sort of needless, um, just threading back to, um, who invented what or who came up with what or who's, you know, whose culture developed what. So just having conversations around what culture is, is a difficult thing to do. I guess from the perspective of someone um, in the United States, um, and I'll specifically ask uh, with regard to oftentimes the uh, white, white audiences, not even necessarily talking about conversations with minorities, why would you feel and have you encountered uh, the idea that it is difficult to have conversations about culture if you are dealing with these non-minority students, white students. Is it is it difficult to even introduce this idea of culture? And if so, why has this been difficult for them to get their heads around? That's my experience, and I don't want to make the assumption that that has been your experience. So please let me know what your experience has been. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because um, I am, uh, although I work in educational anthropology, um, I, I am in the education program here, right? But I also teach generalist uh, courses. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm laughing because our campus is the campus with the most, um, um, with the highest number of, my, my, sorry, the highest number of minority students in the entire Penn State system. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of students who come from Philadelphia. We have a strong international student population. 
And so we have a lot of students of color or people who identify as students of color here on our campus. Um, what is not only interesting, but very unfortunately normal is then when you get students, by the time I have juniors and seniors who have cohorted up into the education program, it's almost all white women, right? Mm. So I go from teaching rather diverse classes when they're freshmen and sophomores, first year and second year, sorry, first year and second year students, um, to their third and fourth year, what ends up happening is we, we tend to see students who um, are far less, less diverse in um, perspective, sometimes in um, background, right, um, socioeconomic status. So it's, it's interesting to see that progression. And the reason that I bring that up is because then the question is, who's teaching our, our babies in schools, mm. right? Um, and what perspectives are they bringing with, uh, with them? And how is that, uh, what, what are the limitations with, with what knowledge is given in schools, right? Mm -hmm. So when, when people, meaning in this case for me, doctoral students will say, I need to define culture. And I remember as a doctoral student, this is something I struggled with as well, frankly, um, because the question is always first and foremost for me, through whose lens from an academic standpoint, are you defining culture? That, mm -hmm. that matters, right? Mm -hmm. um, if it's a non-academic standard or way of seeing the world lens, I should say, um, it's not a question of culture. It's a question of cultures, right? And mm -hmm. so when I'm on a platform like Facebook interacting with maybe um, more seasoned family <laughs> members <laughs> um, and friends, uh, in, in that case, it's not what I see is perhaps sometimes a singular definition of culture, right? Mm -hmm. This is culture with a capital C. Um, and that can be dangerous territory, right? Mm -hmm. When I interact with younger people um, who have different types of experiences and different um, interactions, I would say with media, I think that matters. It's not necessarily that they suddenly get culture. What, I, what I've noted is that they have the tools meaning the words to speak about culture, right? To speak mm. about questions of diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, but having the tools and knowing how to use those tools are not always the same thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the concern that I have with um, younger, the younger generations as they're coming up to have the tools, but not necessarily know how to use the tools. When we think about curiosities and knowing how to um, engage with in not heavy research, I'm not asking that people write a thesis on it, um, but engage with different sources to, to have an opinion that is multifaceted. Um, I think that sometimes people have the tools, they've been given the tools of the internet, for example, but not really understanding how to deeply engage with that, right? Mm -hmm. um, to help them form and inform an opinion. So I think that culture should always be cultures. <laughs> I think we should always be really careful with how we use that. And I think we should be really careful about how we police and gatekeep at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that there, there shouldn't be a degree of gatekeeping to keep um, people safe. Right. Um, and that gets really, really hard too. I'm not saying that we should always gatekeep to keep people safe in ways that are also harmful to other people. There's a both and that I would like to speak to in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, so when we think about, culture or cultures for me. And then like, how are you appropriating? How are you taking, which is um, I think a, a better question, like how are you taking using and 
either not affirming the culture from which it came from, or how are you taking using and not giving back to the culture from which it came from, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that those become really important questions um, that we we need to be consistently in touch with. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that people who uh, are perhaps more seasoned in life, um, it's not that they're not in touch with that necessarily, but I think that sometimes I see a more singular view of this is the culture. Um, and with younger people, sometimes I see a, this is my culture. Um, and gatekeeping through identity politics that makes it difficult to have a conversation. I, I don't know that either one is right or wrong, right? Um, I, I worry about how they interact. Um, that's the bigger question and concern for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'm understanding you correctly. Um, you meant you said gatekeeping around identity politics. So to say, am I understanding that you're saying uh, having conversations about cult black, let's say black American culture, this is, you know, where I come from. Sure. It, is that maybe a, an, a, I don't want to say dangerous, but is that a risky or a, an ill-advised conversation to be having around my identity? I'm, I'll very much personalize it around my identity as a black person in the United States of America to speak about culture in a general sense of, of black people in the U.S., um, do you feel like there's a danger in having that specific conversation with regard to culture? No, absolutely not. Um, okay. And I would never say that anyone shouldn't speak on their identity um, to explain their background. Um, the, the question for me is always, um, are you willing to lean into the complications of culture? Are you mm -hmm. willing to lean into the complications of identity? Okay. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, I'm a biracial woman. A lot of people would not look at me and say, she's half Indian, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in fact, um, there are Indians who would say, I don't know that you're quite Indian enough, right? Mm -hmm. um, I also lived for many years in a Midwestern context where I certainly wasn't white enough, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that when we police, let's just leave it in questions of um, perceptions of race, right? And we police those things based on how we identify other people um, mm -hmm. without taking the time to listen, because it's about your experience with being marginalized um, without hearing how other folks could be minoritized also, that becomes a really dangerous moment in identity politics. What is quote unquote not enough, right? Um, I'm bisexual, am I queer enough? I have been told by people um, in my queer community that I'm not queer enough, right? Mm -hmm. um, it gets really, I think with identity politics, when we, when identity politics sort of, um, smashes into these questions of culture and whose culture and who's for whom is culture appropriate, right? Um, I think that we can unintentionally or sometimes very intentionally minoritize people, right? So there's this um, academic understanding, which I think most people can understand regardless of if I cite it, <laughs> that the oppressed will always become the oppressor, right? So um, there's always sort of this move for, to, to have and to hold positions of power. And so many times what I see is in minoritized populations, the, the desire, a needed desire to have um, sociocultural political power, right? Um, and sometimes that's done by in-group, um, making sure that folks are, um, even within a group, um, have less access to power, right? That's why how we understand like colorism, right? Those things mm -hmm. sort of, they happen. Um, and I think we have to just be really careful when our identity politics sort of smash into 
how we understand um, culture altogether, right? Um, and then how that gets exercised when we think about cultural appropriation, um, racial plagiarism, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that there are ways where this, this conversation is um, getting a little off course? Are there corrections that you feel need to be made? I mean, what is your evaluation of how this conversation is, is happening um, in, in recent years? Um, there are times that some things feel off course, but I don't think it's the conversation. I don't know. I don't necessarily know it's the conversation that you're referencing, right? When I think of, about things getting off course, I do think about specifically this question of identity politics um, sometimes gets off course. I think that um, when we get too steep, steeped in identity politics, we can release ourselves or ignore the necessity to have coalition politics. Um, and that becomes a question of invitations in into things. Um, that becomes a question of who are your allies, accomplices, co-conspirators. And I do look at those as, as different things, right? Um, and when we're thinking about pushing back against cultural appropriation, I think all of these things matter, right? Um, and so how do we necessarily know who has access um, to things and, and how we understand that access is not harmful, right? I think for me, it always goes back to that question of harm, to that question of oppression. Um, how are things being used as tools against toward tools for minoritized communities? Um, and just being really mindful of those things. So for me, like getting back on track, although tracks always scare me because they're too linear. Um, I think if there's anything in this conversation, hopefully folks have listened to it and understand about me, it's that I'm, I'm sort of okay being in all the complications the complicated nature <laughs> um, that is always necessarily culture, um, that is always necessarily our relations to each other. But if I were to say getting back on track, quote unquote, it would be really for me this question of, can we focus in on the harm that we cause to others, whether it's intentional harm, unintentional harm, by our ways of being, knowing and doing as they're connected to systems of power, right? Um, and really being deeply reflective and reflexive about those things. I think that that's always a good first step to working and operating in the world in a way that foregrounds care, right? Um, care for cultures, care for other um, humans, right? Um, and non-human bodies, right? What, is that, what does that mean to foreground questions of care in what we do and how we move in the world? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast audio branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that there's a way, I mean, you've mentioned this term uh, identity politics uh, many times. I don't happen to believe that there are spaces where identity politics do not exist. Um, and I feel like that term is thrown around a lot and it's kind of levied against certain minority communities or communities that are advoca advocating um, for uh, particularly particular care and concern towards uh, marginalized groups. We hear that term kind of thrown out there as a pejorative, oh, this is identity politics, identity politics. Do you feel that there are ways in which um, these marginalized groups 
can cause harm uh, with with too much emphasis or focus on identity politics that they can cause harm towards non-marginalized groups is that I'm I'm not trying to necessarily put words in your mouth, but I, I'm just, I want to understand um, your position, I guess, a little bit better. Are, are there ways in which, um, you know, you as an, an Indian woman or as, as a biracial Indian woman or me as a black woman can do harm in leaning in maybe too heavily to these conversations around cultural appropriation or otherizing a majority group? Um, are there ways that we can do harm um, to to majority groups or non-marginalized groups around around cultural appropriation, conversations around cultural appropriation? You know, I, I don't want to say that we're, um, I think harm can always be caused no matter what, first of all, right? Um, but what I do want to say is more significant than causing harm to a majority group um, is it's not necessarily from my perspective to a group, but there's a question of when do we, it's a very complicated C. My, my bigger concern is when do we allow these things to stop conversation, right? The entire idea of calling out versus calling in. Um, there are moments when it is completely necessary to call somebody out, right? That person has caused physical, emotional, financial, some kind of harm to a, a person or to communities. Calling out becomes a very necessary tool for interrupting um, some kind of oppression. I don't want to ever say that people should not engage in that. Um, there's a question for me about calling in. What does calling in look like? Um, when do we use it? Um, because I think that it's not synonymous, but I think that sometimes when we think about um, these moments when we're saying like, what you did is not okay. And I think that we should be able to say, it's not cool. It's not okay. Don't do that. <laughs> um, you, you have caused a form of harm to a community. Um, and, and perhaps there's some education around that harm, right? So I think that if all, if the only tool we use, I think for me thinking on this, it's a question of a singularity of tools rather than a toolbox. If the only tool we have is to call people out or to say identity politics is the only thing that matters to me um, rather than broader systems of power and how do we um, leverage and move against those systems of power, if we're not doing our job and using multiple tools, then I think what we're going to do is continue to replicate inequities that are, again, going to end up harming minoritized communities, right? So for me, it's a question of who's willing to, to be an accomplice? What does that person, um, what are their politics? Um, how do I invite them in? And I don't want to... Um, for me, I don't want to, to stop that process because of identity politics. Um, and so I think what ends up happening is if you only have the singular tool through through tool and lens through which you see things, and it's always an affront, sometimes what ends up happening is you can't have deeper conversations with people in ways that can interrupt these broader um, sociopolitical, cultural oppressions, and that's what we need to work toward, right? Um, on the other hand, again, there are going to be times that it's just going to be like full stop, whatever this is needs to, to be interrupted without question. So I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and. And I think it's worth really moving into that and saying, OK, how do we do this in ways that are going to be, um, I guess, 
uh, in ways that are a not going to cause any more harm, but b um, going to be tools that we can that we can and should engage in. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers the question at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just I'm trying to make sure that I understand. Um, so what do you, when you speak about calling in versus calling out, I mean, can you lay out for us exactly what, what you mean and what that distinction is and, and how you feel that, that those, that delineation should be happening? Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I think happens, um, really it's a normal thing for me in my classroom because the content that I teach, right? So what are the histories of schools in the United States? How can we understand schools as actually as a normalized tool of oppression, Right. Um, and inevitably in an essay, I will have a student who will use colored people rather than people of color. It Mm. happens every semester. (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) Without fail, every semester I get at least one, if not a handful of people, um, of papers that do not understand the difference. Mm. And what's interesting to me are students who don't know the difference, um, across questions of race and class and background, Right. And I'll have to say, okay, let's talk about the history of this term. And I've gotten to the point where I don't even assign a paper in the semester without having the conversation. Um, and it still happens because even though you think people are listening, sometimes they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, that's a moment of, of calling somebody in, right? That's a moment of saying, okay, hold up. The content of this paper on eugenics was really beautiful. You got what I was laying down. You picked that stuff right on up. I appreciate that. Um, at the same time, that's not, I'm hoping that by that by educating, and I'll tell people, I have you for 16 weeks. By the time you come to me, you're in your 20s. I cannot undo mm-hmm. 20 years. You cannot undo however many years somebody had on this planet before they um, watched your three-minute video, right? Mm-hmm. Like, But what you can do is spark curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. Um and so for me, that's always the goal. There are moments that I can't though. So if I have a student who calls another student a racial epithet in my classroom, that's full stop. Mm-hmm. We're not going any further, right? Um, I'm gonna call you out. I'm gonna say that is not appropriate or I'm sorry, what did you say, right? That's not appropriate in this particular place. That is not the culture of this classroom, right? Mm-hmm. So there are moments Um, Because that's a moment when somebody has caused harm to another person in my presence. The answer is no, right? Mm -hmm. There, I always tell folks when I'm doing training sessions, there is a degree of care that you have to take in this. Um, Because if you are calling somebody out, so for example, I was walking in Philadelphia a couple weeks back and there was a man who was just screaming at this woman, right? Um, And her body language tells me that she does not feel safe. Mm -hmm. That's a moment that I would like to walk up to it and call it out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sorry, what's going on here? Are you okay? Do you feel safe? I, as a person who, um, if if I was on the other side of the screen, you'd see I'm not the tallest person in the world. Um, I'm not going to approach that, right? I'm going to find other ways to interrupt that in ways that keep me safe. So it's always complicated because there's a question of your own physical safety um, that that we need to attend to. Um, And at the same time, you have to look at, at each context. It's always always already contextually based and say, is this a moment where I need to pull, put a full stop on this? Or is this a moment where somebody um, could perhaps benefit from the knowledges that I have benefited from as well, right? Mm-hmm. Not to say that I am suddenly as a professor, the all-knowing, right? Um, uh, I'm not a big fan of that sort of model 
where the professor comes in and, and knows everything in the world. Um, but there are, I'm, I am privileged, right? I have a degree of privilege. Um, I have a literal degree in privilege. Right? Like, <laughs> um, I had access to certain um, ways of knowing in the world that came from being able to get a PhD. Now, is that the only way to access that? No, I don't believe that either, right? So I think that that stuff is always going to be a complex conversation and it's always gonna be contextually based. So when I think about what that means to call someone out or call someone in, that's always a, I need to think about this moment um, and decide what the outcome is for my expression, right? It's like, again, going back to that original conversation, it's a question of expression. How do I um, express my intentions here? And what am I paying attention to? There are certain moments, even among family members, where I know the conversation is not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm well aware. <laughs> um, and perhaps I've tried several times. It doesn't release me from responsibility of continuing those conversations. Um, but I, I do need to continue to engage um, in them in ways that are going to keep me emotionally safe. So, mm-hmm. again, questions of harm questions of safety. Um, but continuing to do something because that's part of what we what we just need, um, I think, um, in broader cultural understanding. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to kind of focus on two things, I guess, here towards the end of this conversation, I guess, the question of harm, which we kind of keep coming back to, um, which is kind of the fundamental issue that we are addressing here with with uh, the topic of cultural appropriation is, you know, are you, you know, first do no harm? Are you doing harm? Um, there are obvious and not so obvious ways to do harm. And so in the example that you gave, you know, this is someone who's you know, either in your classroom is using a racial epithet or, you know, you're walking down the street and you can see someone, a woman who is physically being threatened or at least verbally being threatened to the point that she is becoming physically uncomfortable those are very clear-cut uh, scenarios where it is very obvious that harm is being done. And I think uh, for this conversation around cultural appropriation, it can be difficult to have those conversations because it is not necessarily as obvious that harm is being done or when harm is being done. So I guess I, I would like to know from your perspective, um, do you feel that cultural appropriation is fundamentally harmful are there cases, because I, I mean, I'm not trying to f- you know, force you into a particular stance or point of view. I want to make sure I fully understand where you're coming from. Do you feel that there has been much ado about this issue of cultural appropriation to the point where it's just, we're just sparring about it in ways that are maybe not, necessar- not necessary or helpful? Um, it's just a hot button issue that a lot of folks like to, you know, um, duke it out about because it is it's a lightning rod issue on in online spaces or do you feel that that fundamentally cultural appropriation um is usually a harmful thing what is your perspective on that yeah so here's the thing for me i tend to lean actually in towards this idea um of the fact that cultural appropriation has become in many ways this empty signifier Um, And I think that when that happens, sometimes new tools, new language to really call back to the harm that it causes is important. Um, This is why I I have to stop you. I'm sorry, because I want you're you're in such an academic space and I want to make sure that people are following you when you say it has become an empty signifier. Exactly. (laughs) What do you mean by that? (laughs) 
Yes, absolutely. So when I say that cultural appropriation has become in, in some contexts an empty signifier, what I mean is that it, it doesn't hold the meaning that we think it means, right? We're, we're not necessarily attending to all the nuance that is inherent to that term, right? Um, and so what I mean when I think of cultural appropriation um, and and part of, um, you know, this, this article, I'm going back to, the, again, this article on, on racial plagiarism, what I really love about that, that work is that it's a callback to the idea that cultural appropriation is sometimes used um, as a, a softening of things, right? Especially in the fashion industry, that's the example that's given there, um, that it's, uh, it's something that's forgivable. It was cultural appropriation, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not considered a form of plagiarism, a form of stealing. It's cultural appropriation, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's forgivable. They didn't mean it. It was just hair, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a way to, it has become a way to release people of the harm that they cause. Um, in that particular article that I'm thinking about, um, I think it's 2017, there's a, there's a conversation about gender, right? How is cultural appropriation used um, in certain spaces um, that are gendered male or gendered female versus um, other forms of copyright infringement, for example, that are gendered um, masculine, right? Mm -hmm. um, in who's participating in, for example, academic spaces, right? Um, mm -hmm. In the publishing industry. Now we're talking about a legal question because it's copyright infringement. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a question of, well, cultural appropriation is used predominantly in terms of fashion. Um, the argument then is that it's it becomes gendered, right? Um, and so, well, it's we don't need to pay as, as close of attention to it because this is just a space um, built for um, built for women, right? It's the mm -hmm. fashion industry. Now, are you speaking of the the article by Minha mm -hmm. Fam? Yes, the, the paper. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what? what that author does is, is talks about like, what are the gendered lines through which we talk about cultural appropriation as something that can be forgiven or um, this question of an infringement, which is something that can be um, legally taken up. Right. Mm -hmm. And how, how do those spaces get gendered? Um, and then th there's a question of class, right. Um, who has the ability to have those things taken as, as seriously, like this is an infringement um, on questions of class and race. So all of these things sort of factor in when I personally talk to students about cultural appropriation, when I talk to my 12 year old about it, frankly, I talk about it in terms of this is taking somebody's culture without referencing that culture, without giving back to that culture, without being invited in by that culture. Participating in it causes harm. Is that the type of harm you want to cause people? And so for me, um, it is the, the act of it can be that clear cut how it comes out in forms of expression, how it comes, um, how it's actually enacted is much more muddy, right? And so mm -hmm. I don't wanna ever say that there aren't situations where um, things can't, can't be left unclear, but then for me, it's that question of, are you willing to admit that you are wrong, right? Mm -hmm. um, so one of the, I'll very quickly tell you, one of the stories I always tell my students is that as a K-12 teacher, as a, as a college professor, regardless, in education, I'll say, you'll have a scenario where you'll have a student who just drove you absolutely crazy. I mean, just they bothered you. They got under your skin. 
this mm -hmm. idea that all teachers love all students, it's a myth, okay? Mm -hmm. Just teachers are people too, right? Mm -hmm. um, and time will pass and that student will come back to your classroom and they'll say like, oh, I really miss your class. And you're thinking like, you missed me? <laughs> you missed me, you missed, are you kidding me? Like every day was a struggle with you in the classroom. <laughs> And you're thinking, how did I accidentally help that student that I didn't really like, right? I accidentally helped them. They really loved it, they loved my class. There was something about it that really spoke to them, that resonated with them. Mm -hmm. And for every moment that you can accidentally help a student, you can accidentally harm a student. Mm -hmm. And you have to be really very real about that responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. we, I like people to think about it as educators because I think that we've, ha we've had um, in our lives if you've gone through the K-12 system here in the United States, you may have been on that side of things as a student where you thought like, God, I really love that teacher. And who knows how they felt about you, right? Mm -hmm. This is not a call, by the way, not to go back to your teachers and thank them. Always, <laughs> okay. Um, but when we do things that somebody says that's cultural appropriation, we have to be willing to say, I didn't recognize that I was causing harm. Mm -hmm. It could help as much as we harm. And we have to be very real about that. And so part of it, a big part of it for me is saying, how is it what I did was not something that I thought was harmful that really was. And on the other side of it, if you say to somebody like, hey, if you were to come up to my son in however many years, if he were to Kurtha and say like, that's cultural appropriation. And he says like, look, I have a mom who's half Indian and I've lived part of my life in India. This is a part of my culture. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to say like, okay, I was wrong. I'm so sorry mm -hmm. about this. Right. Are you willing to approach people with questions rather than answers? Right. Mm -hmm. Those are always the things that I like to foreground when we have these conversations because they are complicated, because they are muddy. The way that I define cultural appropriation, um, especially with this element of you, you financially benefit or you, you benefit in some sort of some form of capital. OK, mm -hmm. so whether it is financial capital or cultural capital, right, your ability to have um, cultural mobility, cultural capital is this idea like you can have cultural mobility um, with things that aren't necessarily always connected to finances. Right. Mm -hmm. So I always give the example of like the kid in the classroom who is the class clown who has mobility um, because he has a sense of humor that speaks to his fellow students. Right. So mm -hmm. there's not necessarily financial capital involved in that. But so if you are taking from another culture and you, you gain some form of capital from that, and you do not um, have any touchstones with that culture, and you're not giving back to that culture, and you're not recognizing that culture, we're in danger, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're not giving back, um, and because you weren't invited in. Um, and this is not to say that everybody has to be invited in also for all things. This is not to say that if you go to your local Indian restaurant, and you've um, have um, Indian food and you love Indian food that you can't eat it just because you're not Indian, right? Like, I don't want to get into that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and so at the same time, we have to be very careful about how these things get enacted, whose voices we keep out, which voices we temper, right? And all of these things need to always already be in play. If we think of it as this, like, you're wrong, I'm right. This is very clear cut. Um, and at the same time, there are certain things that are incredibly clear cut from my perspective, like the Washington Redskins, like the Braves chop. <laughs> Those mm -hmm. are things that are not like my daughter's full play with Peter Pan. Those are things that are not appropriate. Mm -hmm. So there are moments that it's very clear cut. It's both and. It is both clear. It is also muddy. We both we really need to enter into it with some curiosity and questions um, and then the ability to say, I messed that up. How can I do better? 
right? Mm -hmm. um, we do have the ability to do better. Um, it's not J Smooth um, is an influencer on, I don't know which platform, but <laughs> he has this talk where he, he discusses our, um, he discusses questions of race um, through this dental hygiene metaphor. And he says, there are a lot of people who um, talk about it, like getting their, like a molar removed, right? Like, oh, I have my race, my racism removed. Mm -hmm. um, and he talks about it, like, it should be like brushing your teeth. We get up in the morning, many people brush their teeth. You go to bed, you brush your teeth, mm -hmm. assuming they have access, um, frankly, to um, dental hygiene tools, right? So when we think about questions of race, questions of um, sex, gender, gender expression, religion, home language, all of those things, and our bias, then it's really a question of how do I engage consistently in this reflective process of, for lack of all better terms, brushing your teeth every mm -hmm. day, twice a day, rather than just saying, oh, I thought about it once and I'm done. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's thinking about cultural appropriation and they're saying like, okay, they listen to this um, podcast, for example, and they say like, okay, I'm actually left with more questions than answers. I would say, absolutely great. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. I want you to have um, more questions, less answers, and to be able to say, I don't know, I may have been wrong, and I'm willing to engage consistently um, until I come to something that makes sense, not just to me, but um, in and across communities. Mm -hmm. That's that's good. Being comfortable with the questions, I think, is 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 a really um, thoughtful way to approach a conversation like this. So I will say, you know, kind of what is your general view of of someone like me, a creator, you know, a social media person person who is attempting to have these conversations in little three to five minute little bites like here, let me throw this thing out in front of you and let's consider this topic obviously in the space, in the academic space in which you exist, that would be ill-advised. That's not the way that you would approach it because um, you're, you're approaching it in a much more holistic way and, it, and you're approaching it in a way that allows people to be much more thoughtful and uh, to have a much broader framework for understanding these questions um, once they leave your space. Mm -hmm. But in an online space, that is almost impossible. Is it a foolhardy task? Is it something um, that probably should, should not be engaged in? I mean, I, I had to learn when I first started the type of work that I'm doing uh, when TikTok was a minute. It's like, okay, I, there were topics that I tried to address in a minute that I could not address. And I, I can look back and say, I probably shouldn't have tried to talk about um, this topic in mm -hmm. a minute. And mm -hmm. There are topics like this that, you know, from our conversation here today, um, well, I would leave with the impression that, hey, this is this is probably not something that we can just have in little, you know, three minutes, um, little snippets online. This is a much deeper conversation and it really leaves a lot of room for um, in inconclusive sort of statements to be made and misunderstandings and you know, just generalizations that are not necessarily helpful. I mean, how do you feel about this? Like the idea of this conversation being had in on platforms like TikTok and Instagram, where people are half the time just watching 30 to 60, maybe 90 seconds of a three to five minute video. Is this even an efficient um, or viable way to have this conversation? Well, I, I think that an academic who tells you that I need to stay in the academy is gatekeeping knowledge. <laughs> I mm, think that, that mm -hmm. is a really harmful um, understanding. I am guessing, I don't know you well enough to, to 
um, aside from, you know, looking at the videos, I, I, I can't make this determination, but I'm guessing, just a guess, that you probably do a lot of research that goes into those three minutes. Mm-hmm. It's not Absolutely. like you just turned on a mic and you said, okay, I'm just going to talk um, for three minutes about this thing that I feel, right? <laughs> this is not to say that you don't have experience and that what you feel isn't valid, right? Mm-hmm. So always for me, that sort of both and. Um, what I would say is that in the middle of, of those complications, it's a great starting point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't get all the information out, but I can't get all the information out. I mean, I have two solo authored books on topic. Ask me if I think at the end of those two solo authored books where I had all the pages to get through these ideas, these complex ideas, if I think that I got all the ideas out. I did not. Ask me if when I wrote those books, if I don't think differently about them now than I did even when they were published. I absolutely do. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the thing about um, engaging deeply um, with the idea of thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Is That it should always be. And now. Right. Mm-hmm. always the next for me. So um, it is, again, it's a both and. It, it is a, is this a great starting point? And do you recognize that as a good starting point? And does your audience recognize it as a good starting point? Mm-hmm. Right? Rather than watching either all three minutes, which would be great. There's a lot of information packed into there. Um, there's also something that you do that I've noticed in your videos is you cite the ideas that um, that you're using, right? Mm-hmm. You don't just use an idea and, and not have any citation for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen on social media platforms where folks don't. And then when we think about plagiarism, <laughs> um, <laughs> and the dangers of it, we're already in that territory. Yeah. This is not to say that you have to cite every idea, but so I think for me, when I say like, is it a foolhardy task? No. Um, do I think that I have students who engage with that? I've had students send me TikToks. I've had students send me your TikToks. <laughs> Like, okay, cool. I, I think I saw that one actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a way to, I use that as, as assignments for, do they understand the weekly readings? Mm-hmm. Find me a social media source that you think I, um, speaks back to this reading, either yeah. against it or for it. So I think that when we think about what social media can give us, it can give us this plethora of ideas. It can be dangerous because the algorithm steers us towards ideas, right? Mm-hmm. As an academic, we work on, or as an academic who works with qualitative research, specifically ethnographic research, I work on what's called over massively over, overdetermined information, which is that I see it's something in a context so many times that it speaks back to itself. Mm. Social media is that when you are in that loop of what the social media is feeding you, because that's what you want to see, it mm. could be very easy to say, okay, I've, I've now fallen into confirmation bias. This right. is exactly what I thought it was. Right? right. So the question is, are you being curious? Right. Are mm. you being curious? Is your audience being curious? If what you say doesn't quite hit what they agree with, are they curious enough as people to say, let me go look at some other places and say, is this going to confirm, deny my feelings? Am I going to be pushed into the uncomfort, into the discomfort of not knowing, Mm -hmm. right? Am I okay in that discomfort? Those are, those are all questions I think we should all be asking. And so with any social media that is um, educational, and I do consider your work as educational social media, Mm -hmm. um, do you have the right to educate? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I'm not going to gatekeep that. Um, do people have, do you have the responsibility to be um, as well read as you can be? Um, and I say that as you can be because there are paywalls for academic stuff mm-hmm. that 
boot that that gatekeeps the ability to the access to information. Um, but I think if we all approach this as a, an, a not yet question, there is a woman, um, Maxine Green, in my field who says, um, I am now what I'm not yet. Mm. And so can we look at these this conversation as a not yet? Mm. Um, and say, if it is not yet, if we don't yet know all of the answers, because it is so complicated, can we lean into it together with a sense of curiosity and openness um, mm -hmm. that I think you approach your work with? Mm -hmm. I think if that's what educational, um, I think educational uh, social media can give us, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that my student scrolling by says, okay, wait, I, I heard this thing. Now I'm going to think about it in this other place also. Mm -hmm. But knowing that even social media can, can feed into our own bias and being critical of that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so important. Well, I, I would like to ask you two things before we go. I would like to for you to give us a few resources that people who want to study this topic more deeply um, can utilize. So can you give us a couple of names and books or, you know, documentaries or what do you recommend that people check out to to understand the issue, these issues uh, better? I'm trying to, sorry, my, my office lights like to turn off on me after so, so long of sitting. Um, you know, as far as resources go, I, I think just um, one of the things I like to do when I am not sure about something is I will go to scholar.google.com mm -hmm. and I will just type in the search terms that I'm curious about because it mm -hmm. gives you a whole different set of reading things. Mm -hmm. But I think when rather than providing like, because sometimes academic resources are very discipline specific, mm -hmm. rather than providing you a list of that, I would ask you to start looking at the historical lenses of the things that you are curious about as just a starting block um, and saying, how does this historical lens, first of all, who's telling me about the historical lens from whose history and whose version of history, history is it being written? Mm -hmm. And then really engaging deeply um, I can probably, I don't know if you have the ability to link some things. I can send you some resources if people yeah, I can clear yeah. resources, yep. but um, I would rather leave that a little bit for the purpose of this moment. I'm going to leave it a little open-ended and say, really start leaning into your curiosities and then thinking about layers of power. It's always layered. It's always nested and layered. So if I'm reading the, or watching this documentary, which is a powerful one, who's telling me the story, mm -hmm. right? Who had the money to produce it? Mm -hmm. what, are, what is the bias that is sort of undergirding what I'm watching right now? Mm -hmm. um, and just always being critical. And critical, as I told, tell my students, just because you're critical doesn't mean it give you the right to be an asshole, mm -hmm. right? Um, there, there's a difference between a respectful critique of something and just going after somebody because you have the license to do it behind um, the anonymity of a keyboard. Right. So I right. think moving in those ways becomes the most significant thing you can do. Okay. Well, I will, um, if you can send me even just a couple of resources uh, that you would recommend or just authors in general, whatever you're, you're checking out or would recommend that people who are, again, not necessarily existing in the academic or scholarly space could check out to help them get their, their heads around this better. Because there are a lot of people who, who really do, they just want to understand better. They want to do better. They have a desire um, to move more carefully through the world. And so I always want to give those people the opportunity to, to learn on, on a deeper level than what they're ever going to get from my little three minute assessment. Online. You know, I, think that, I think I want to pause you on that and say that that's um, undermining the work that you do. Um, and I think they <laughs> appreciate the work that you do. 
But also, um, I do want to say to folks who are looking for other resources, thank you for doing that and not for putting the labor on minoritized communities mm. to tell you um, mm -hmm. what's right and what's wrong for them, for their bodies, for the communities and cultures with which they're they're touching and um, are touched by. So I think that that sort of work at a, at a base level as an ally is just necessary. So thank you mm -hmm. for that work. Yeah. Absolutely. And then lastly, I mean, this might not be a great uh, way to end because you may or may not even have a comment about it, but I don't know how familiar you are with Paul Simon's Graceland album because this is the next place that I'm going because I love to tell stories around music, musicians, um, entertainment in general, film, television, and how um, those things in the real world interact with these issues around race and culture. And so this is a big story for me. I'm spending several days, I mean, it's probably been close to a week now, just sort of uh, teasing out this script and really, as you said, doing the research and understanding and listening to the music and really asking myself some questions about how I feel about this work. So I don't know how familiar you are with this album, um, Paul, I'll just say uh, for, for general reference, for those who are listening, Paul Simon made an album called Graceland in 1986 where he utilized uh, South African musicians to make an album that fused his style, which was kind of a singer songwriter style pop with um, the uh, South African, you know, the style of, of, of the South African townships uh, during the, at the height of apartheid. So this was very controversial and there were a lot of accusations that flowed around. Um, but do you have just a very quick, a quick and dirty assessment of just, this is how that hit me. This is how, you know, I, I grapple with that project, the, just the existence of it. We, I'm sure we've all heard singles, you know, You Can Call Me Al and Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. And, you know, these these were kind of ubiquitous songs at that time. But do you kind of have any, and if, even if you don't have a comment specifically about that album, but the idea of, you know, an, a white American musician kind of fusing their sound with the sound of this very, you know, very much uh, oppressed and repressed culture that was going through a very, very difficult time politically and, and still is. I mean, what's your kind of general um, assessment of that? Um, again, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that it's my place um, to comment about from a, from a musician standpoint, right, mm -hmm. um, as to how these things rolled. What I can say is that that very much was um, Paul Simon's work was a strong facet of my childhood, right? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know, child of the 80s, um, grew up listening to it, um, never really thinking twice about it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure that we had, I'm sure if I were to go to, you know, my dad's house, I would see maybe records <laughs> still sitting around. Um, and it wasn't until I was an adult and watched like the music videos that I started saying like, oh, wait, what mm -hmm. am I, what am I not getting here? Wow. Um, I remember as a young person, um, so my, my biological father, um, I, both my dads are from India, but my biological father um, grew up uh, for a portion of his childhood in, in Mombasa, right? Mm. And then for the rest of the time, the time of his childhood in Goa, India, which is a very different sort of feel from it than the rest of India um, in terms of colonization and, and histories and things like that. Um, I remember listening to Paul Simon's work as a young person and saying, like, there's something about this beat there's something about the sound that is categorically different than everything else I'm hearing and watching my dad move differently to that music mm. um, than he did to other music, unless he was, you know, listening to, to songs in Konkani or, or other languages um, that he grew up with. 
um, and other musical styles that he grew up to. And just, just watching his own body just sort of move differently to it, right? Mm -hmm. So I, as a young person who grew up in an overwhelmingly white space um, in the Midwest, really sort of fell into the, okay, well, this feels different. And I don't know why, right? Mm -hmm. And then as an adult had to really have a strong reevaluation of something that I had such a clear point in my childhood with, mm -hmm. um, and say like, whoa, I don't know what's going on here, but this doesn't feel right. Now mm -hmm. it doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm. um, and then start asking other questions about music, right? For me, that the curiosity was like, how do I understand not only Paul Simon's work, but how do I understand music altogether? Um, mm -hmm. When we have not, I won't say fused, but like laid your musical understandings on top of other cultures in a particular mm -hmm. um, And I still have not yet come to terms with all of it. I'm still wrestling with it. I continue mm -hmm. to say, I don't know. Um, but to say that there, there are lots of parts about that album um, and the politics behind it that I still am not completely aware of, mm -hmm. that I still remain curious about. But to say that even growing up with something and then watching it through the lens of, of an academic, it gave me a lot of pause and mm -hmm. say, I don't, in my gut, <laughs> this doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. um, and then trusting my gut and saying like, okay, well, let's, let's really think more deeply about these things. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Well, I'm glad I got your comments on that. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm always curious to hear kind of where people settle on, on issues related to the real world. Yeah. People who've had to to delve into these topics deeply and then to take a real world example like that and just kind of see where where you're sitting with it at this point. So thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Yeah, and um, I hope you have the chance to see the, the piece that I'm going to do on and I don't even know where I'm settling with it. So I think, you know, being OK with, as you said, more questions than answers is is a place that I'm getting to, although it's not the most satisfying thing in uh, social media context, people definitely like for you to be able to come down very conclusively about certain things. And I've certainly gotten into hot water or, or you know, trouble myself um, from not making maybe declarative statements around things. But I think um, being able to stay in that place of questioning and being comfortable with the questions, which I think is one of the themes of this, this conversation and, and just the way that you approach these topics um, it's just going to have to be okay. It's going to have to be okay in relation in relation to uh, that specific work of art. So just thank you so much again, Dr. Bonnie uh, Wozlik, for your um, expertise, for your thoughts, for your conversation, for your time, and uh, for sharing something with us that we don't necessarily get to experience uh, often here in the real world. If we're not sitting in a classroom, we may not get to hear from someone as well informed and as thoughtful as you are about a topic like this. So just thank you for taking the time to, to take this little journey with us. Well, thank you very much for your time today too. I'm in for your work. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much.